It's been a great year so far, um, and I can't believe that we're wrapping up Isaiah tonight. I just want you to think of where we've been as we've studied the book of Isaiah together. We started in chapter one, where we saw a theme that developed throughout the entire book, that God is glorified in both salvation and judgment. Salvation for God's people, but then at the same time, uh, judgment for those who choose to reject God. We looked at chapter 40, which was kind of the, the overview text of the entire book um, that says this, don't you know, haven't you heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, that God is both great and good, and that we can wait on the Lord. We talked about the connections between Isaiah and the New Testament, where Jesus even pulls imagery from Isaiah chapter 5 and talks about the vine and the branches. And Jesus uses the same language to show that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He was victorious. And now we get to connect to him as the true vine. We learned how to write a praise psalm in Isaiah 25. How has God been faithful to us in the past? And then how has God delivered us through the cross? And how will God deliver us in the future? We learned about King Hezekiah. He literally had his back against the wall from the Assyrian army. And he was facing the total threat of annihilation, but he trusted the Lord. God delivers in the 11th hour and sends Sennacherib back home all alone. But you'll remember Hezekiah started well. He didn't finish well. Toward the end of his life, he let his guard down and he sold all of his military and national secrets to the nation that would someday conquer his children's children. A good start doesn't guarantee a fantastic finish. And then we looked at Isaiah 53 during Resurrection Week when Dr. Messerly talked through the medical background of the crucifixion and gave us a picture of the suffering servant. And then we looked at Isaiah 58 where we learned that God cares more about, more about our spiritual life than just religion and lip service. We looked at Isaiah 59, a picture of the gospel, that the bad news is terrible, but the good news is better than our comprehension. Adam talked us through Isaiah 65, the new heaven and the new earth. So tonight we're going to finish with Isaiah 66. It's the very final chapter of the book of Isaiah. And we're not going to look at the whole chapter. We're going to look at the last half of the last chapter. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. One of the themes that we've seen emerge continually throughout the book of Isaiah, and we're going to see that tonight, is dualism. We see both salvation, rescue, redemption for God's people, but then at the same time, we see judgment, discipline for those who reject God. And that's what we're going to see in our text tonight. Our text tonight ties a bow on the entire book of Isaiah. So if tonight's your first night, this is an incredible summary of the book that we've looked at. Or if you don't remember anything we've talked about all year, don't worry. This is a great summary of the book of Isaiah. So I'm going to read um, just our entire passage, and then we're going to work through this pretty systematically tonight so that together we can understand and apply uh, how, uh, how this text works. So verse 15 is where I'm going to start, Isaiah 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, by a sword with all flesh, and those slain by the sword shall be many. And those who sanctify and purify themselves go into gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice. Sounds good, right? Mice? Mm. Shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time 
is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses, in chariots, in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I'll take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So I just want to start by looking at verse 15. It starts with a, a phrase in English, for behold. If we were to make that a little more readable, a little more uh, 2023, it would say, listen up or pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. And as Isaiah finishes his entire book, he says, the Lord will come in fire. Now, when God is described as fire throughout the Old Testament, it's a description of his power, of his presence. We see that like through the book of, all throughout the book of Exodus. But when God's wrath or his anger is described as fire, that's probably not a good thing. It's a picture of his just, his righteous wrath. And the writers in the New Testament, they, they finish this, this picture. We see that in 2 Peter. You don't have to turn there. Just allow me to, to read 2 Peter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, that's the word that destroyed the world through Noah's flood. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's actually using some of the same imagery as Isaiah, that someday, a day to the future for his, for Isaiah's reader, for Peter's reader, for us, the day is coming when God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth with fire. In this case, heavens isn't God's place of residence. It's the celestial beings. It's the sun, moon, and stars. That God will destroy both the earth and the heavens with fire. It's a destruction that's going to even exceed that of Noah's flood. It's not a pretty picture, something that's coming in the future. But then as Isaiah continues, he provides a picture of those who will be judged by the Lord. Verse 17 is a bit confusing. It talks about mice and pig's flesh. But then verse the beginning of verse 17 in Isaiah 66 sounds almost positive, doesn't it? Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into gardens. That's not neutral. That's not positive. It's actually negative. It's a picture of people who almost ceremonially or ritually cleanse themselves, consecrate themselves, and they follow this cult leader into this cult-like garden and practice these cult-like religious ceremonies. And as part of their worship, they did something that was a total abomination to all Jewish people. They ate pig's flesh and, an, and the abomination, I'm not sure what that is, and mice. According to the Jewish law, that was the last thing that should be on the menu for any good Jew. That was an abomination to the Lord for his people. But what I find interesting is that they sought to purify themselves. See, we know this side of the cross that it's impossible for any of us to purify ourselves. Right? We need Christ. We need the purity that comes from him at the cross. 
his righteous record credited to our account. So verse 17, it talks about idol worship, not God worship. But you notice as we read through the passage, it's really a giant bookend, isn't it? It starts with wrath, it ends with wrath, but in the middle, there's this picture of hope and joy that's coming for God's people. It's a beautiful picture of our future. And we see that starting in verse 18. Let me read that again. For I know their works, their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. All nations and tongues. Those are words that we don't want to miss. Tongues is really just another word for languages. Nations One translation properly translates that as people groups or ethnic groups. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word ethne. It means people groups. Isaiah is describing a day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every people group, will experience the glory of the Lord. That's a word that comes up a couple times in our text, doesn't it? The word glory. That's the Hebrew word kabod. Literally, it means a a weightiness, a heaviness. Consider some of the glory experiences of the Old Testament saints. You think of Exodus 24, when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and he beholds at least part of God's glory. And you know that Moses asked God to see his face? God says, nobody can see my face and live, and he beholds only a a portion of God's glory. We're going to look at that text, very interesting text, later later this summer. But because Moses encountered the glory of God on the mountain, his face literally radiated for days and weeks. The people of Israel, they saw the glory of the Lord descend on the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Isaiah, he had this throne room-like experience in Isaiah 6 where where he beheld the glory of God in in a vision. Or Ezekiel, he saw the glory of the Lord in a vision in Ezekiel 1. Think of Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. They they beheld the glory of Jesus in a way that is beyond what we can comprehend. Even Jesus says he'll return in glory in Matthew 25, 31. But what about us? Have we had a glory experience like Moses, where our face has glowed for weeks on end? No. Have we had a throne room vision like Isaiah? Probably not. So it's maybe hard for us to grasp the, the weight of God's glory. Now, I've heard some people compare the weight of God's glory to you know, that feeling of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or the feeling of being on top of Mount Everest, or the feeling of, of standing at the shore of the ocean, looking out and seeing the vastness and feeling our smallness. Maybe others describe that feeling of glory as watching your first child be born or seeing your fiance for the first time on your wedding day. Those are glorious moments. They're weighty moments, but they don't even come close to comparing to experiencing the glory and the greatness of God. Just this morning, I was reading in Exodus chapter 19, it's a wild text where the people of Israel are leaving Egypt. They're meandering towards the promised land. They come up to Mount Sinai, and, and God's preparing to give his covenant to Moses. So they tell the people to, to prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves, get ready to, to meet the Lord. So they set up this fence sort of around the mountain so the people don't get too close. 
And then God descends on the mountain with this visible fire. And these trumpets start to play, and they get louder and louder as the people start to tremble. The mountain starts to tremble with this giant earthquake. And the trumpets, I'm assuming are angelic trumpets, they get louder and louder. The people see the lightning, they hear the thunder, they see the fire, they feel the earthquake, they hear the trumpets. And what's their response? They go to Moses and say, Moses, don't let God talk to us. We're going to die. That was their reaction to the glory of the Lord. How about Isaiah in Isaiah 6? When he encountered the glory of the Lord, what did he say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Over and over again in the Old Testament, when people encountered the greatness, the glory of God, even a fraction of God's glory, they fell on their face. They worshiped with awe, with reverence with respect, we might even feel like there's this glory gap. Am I missing something? Am I supposed to be seeking after the same experience of these Old Testament saints encountering God's glory? You know, when we read a a text like Isaiah 66, we have to understand where it fits in biblical theology. Biblical theology, it's how the Bible fits together. It's the the big storyline of Scripture. So when we look at a text like this, maybe there's a text in the New Testament that might give us an idea of what a glory experience might look like for a believer today. I just want to read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Listen carefully. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who's the glory of God? Jesus. That through the incarnation, when Jesus took on our form and our flesh, God revealed his glory through the Son. That means this side of the cross, that we get to seek after the glory of God through knowing Jesus. We don't have to seek after a mysterious glory cloud. We don't have to hunt for this manifestation of mystery of God's glory. No, the glory of God is Jesus himself, and we experience God's glory by knowing Christ. This is a spiritual reality for us today, that someday when Jesus returns in glory, will become a physical reality for us as well. When we behold his glory with our eyes and we'll live, it'll be the most incredible moment of our lives. That's the day prophesied in verse 18 when we see his glory and live. But until then, we seek after the glory of God by seeking after Christ. And that's our first principle tonight, be a glory seeker. Be a glory seeker. Right now we worship who we don't see, and we worship him in awe and reverence, but the day is coming when we'll worship who we do see, and that will be a worship experience that is so otherworldly that we can't even comprehend it. We see Jesus right here in Isaiah 66. 
But as the text continues, the, the picture of Jesus gets even more clear. Look again at verse 19 of our text. And I will set a sign among them. Any idea what that sign might be? Again, we've got to think about biblical theology. We've got to go to Matthew chapter 12. Listen to what Jesus says. Some of the scribes, the Pharisees, they answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you see the sign? The sign is the Son of Man being three days and three nights in, or three days in the, in the tomb. The Son of Man dying and rising again. The sign is the resurrection, the linchpin of our faith, the resurrection of Christ. And then look what happens in Isaiah 66 after the sign. Second half of verse 19, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pol, to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the nations. You see what Isaiah is saying? That after the great sign, then God is going to send what he calls survivors, maybe a, a word you and I would use today would be missionaries, to other nations. And then he starts lifting, listing off cities and places. Tarshish, that's modern-day Spain. Pole, it could be Put, it could be Libya in Africa. Lud, it, it's Lydia, that's in uh, modern-day Turkey. Tubal, it's in modern-day Greece. But if we're honest, the locations don't matter. Isaiah's painting this geographical picture around Israel that the missionaries, the, the survivors, are going to go from Jerusalem and they're going to take the message of the sign all around the world. And what's incredible is you and I have watched the fulfillment of this prophecy for the last 2,000 years. Think of the disciples, the 12 apostles. Have you ever considered what happened to them? Ever considered where they went? Think of a guy like Thomas. Thomas, he likely died a martyr's death in India. Paul, Peter probably died in Rome after Peter had taken the gospel throughout, after Paul had taken the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. John, he died in the island of Patmos. Philip, he shared the gospel with an Ethiopian court official who took the message of the gospel back home to Africa. Others think Matthew preached in Africa. The other Judas, not the one who portrayed Jesus, served in Armenia. And then God used an intense persecution in Jerusalem right after the ascension, and then later through Nero to take the message of the gospel and spread it throughout the world. Those survivors took the gospel around the known world. But the prophecy doesn't just apply to the 12 apostles. Think of how we can be, how our young adult family, how our church family can be part of the fulfillment of the survivors taking the message of the gospel the message of Christ all around the world. I think of Caleb McAvoy and his family who just finished a couple years ago translating uh, the Bible into the language of the Migaba people group in Papua New Guinea. I think of 
Vern and Denny Johnson, missionaries that our church supports who just finished translating the Bible in the language of the Palaka people in the Ivory Coast. The Smiths are down in Brazil bringing the gospel, translating scripture eventually to a group of people in the Amazon who don't have the Bible yet. A couple weeks ago, you heard from Kevin and Jane Moore, who are serving with a Reach Global City team uh, in Japan. They talked on Sunday morning. Tokyo is a city of metro area of 37 million people with less than a half of a percent of an evangelical presence, and they're bringing the gospel to Tokyo. Some of you have gone with us to Mexico where we invest in the lives of missionary kids, some of whom have parents that are translating the Bible, the languages of, of people in the mountains that don't yet have scripture yet. You might not realize this, but Highland is uh, funding building a seminary in Haiti, one of the most war-torn countries in our hemisphere. We support a school in Ethiopia, which trains pastors and missionaries from around the region that you and I couldn't even get into the countries that they're serving in. You know, I hear of stories when I think of people like that. Sometimes I feel like maybe we can get a little comfortable. Sometimes we can get a little, I can get a little content with life here that we lose track of our big picture purpose. And how does Isaiah talk about our purpose? To declare God's glory among the nations. Here's my dream for young adults, that we're not just a comfortable community where we make friends and enjoy free coffee on Monday nights. God's purpose for you coming here is far deeper than a social club and a friend group. We are not the YMCA or the New Optimist Club. We have such a deeper purpose than just connecting. We are glory sharers. We have the opportunity, we have the task to be part of the greatest story in history, declaring God's glory among the nations. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but young adults is not a place where where we're going to be forever. Think about the difference between a garden and a greenhouse. Anyone have a garden this year that they just planted? Yeah. Joe, how's your garden going so far? Not good. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry that I asked. <laughs> when you have a garden, maybe not Joe's garden, but when you have a garden, you take a seed, you plant it in the ground, and that plant stays in your garden for the rest of its life, right? But compare that with a greenhouse. A greenhouse, it, it grows plants that are sent, they're launched. And what's the purpose? To make my front porch look nice, right? You see the difference? Young adults is in the garden. We're not growing here to stay here forever. None of us will be here in this room forever. No, we're a greenhouse where God is growing, developing, strengthening our faith with the goal of launching, of sending. Now, I'm not just talking about launching and sending to leading a life group or leading a G180 group or teaching women's Bible study. No, those are great things. But I want us to think bigger and broader of our purpose, launching to be people who declare God's glory among the nations. 
Now, that could be our nation. That could be the United States of America. But what if it's bigger than that? What if God is calling some of you to go, to leave behind the comforts of life in Wausau or wherever you might live and say, I'm going to go talk about Jesus to people who have never heard about him before. That's our purpose. That's our second principle tonight is be a glory sharer. Be a glory sharer. Because we're not planted here, but we are growing here with the purpose of growing as glory sharers. I feel like that changes even our motivation for coming on a Monday because our time here is short. So instead of just coming to connect, our purpose is to grow, to take the next step in our walk with Christ. We listen to the teaching to grow. We join a finally free small group to grow. We invest in our small group to grow, not just to connect, but to apply what we learn. We find a a mentor to ask us the hard questions and to grow. We should be a different person today than we were nine months ago. Do you see the growth in your life? Does your leader see the growth in your life? We're a greenhouse, not a garden. So you might be some time for some self-reflection, even asking the Lord, is it possible I'm too comfortable? God, could you be calling me to go and to declare your glory among the nations? God, are you calling me to something bigger than what I'm doing today? Do I see my purpose in the young adult family to, to grow and to go, not just to connect? Just imagine what God could do through our young adult family if, if we ask those questions. I imagine that we could leave a couple of you in Mexico next year, not accidentally. <laughs> I'll filter that comment. <laughs> but intentionally, because you want to serve the Lord at some of the schools and some of the regions that we partner with. Maybe it means that some of you go back to school and go to Bible college to become a missionary. Maybe it means dropping what you're doing and, and jumping on board with the city team in Tokyo with Kevin and Jane Moore, Adam Bailey, missionaries we support. Maybe it just means investing in people here. Investing in our G180 students or other young adults, raising them up to be a generation that is also willing to ask the hard questions and saying, I'll go, God, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. We're a greenhouse, not a garden. Okay, look at verse 20. After we see our purpose to declare God's glory to the nations, verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. You know, this is one of those verses that I think, you know, ESV, I think we could have done better. Um, Anyone know what a dromedary is? I'm really glad you knew that because I had to look it up. Yeah, it's like a camel. So glad. I I knew that you were all smarter than me anyway. That's fine. Um, And then the word litter, I I think of like a cat litter. That's not what this is. This is like a a chariot, um, like a wagon. Here's the picture. This is a picture of thousands of millions of people descending on Jerusalem, riding horses, riding in chariots, riding on camels, all coming to worship the Lord 
in Jerusalem. That's the picture. And we're not designed to, to think about this verse literally. I don't think this is talking uh, about people literally descending on Jerusalem in camels. Instead, this is a picture of millions of people coming together to worship the Lord. And again, we have to understand this text through the lens of biblical theology. The new covenant, Jesus outlines a new place of worship, doesn't he? In John 4, he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he says the day is coming when it doesn't matter. You're not going to worship God on this mountain or that mountain, the Temple Mount or Mount Gerizim, that true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. That when we have a relationship with Christ, that when our sins have been forgiven, when we place our faith in him for our salvation, we don't have to go to a place to worship God. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to come to Highland Community Church. We can worship God at any time from anywhere. That's what he's saying. We can worship God anywhere. Look at verse 21. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. We've got to make sure we understand the pronoun. Some of them, it's not talking about the Jewish people. We're talking about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every ethne, every ethnic group. But God will take some of them and make them Levites and priests. See, if you know your Old Testament history, that should blow your mind. Because underneath the Old Covenant, there were only a certain class of people that were allowed to be priests and Levites. It was descendants of the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and it was his lineage that served as the priests, as the worship leaders, as the ones who oversaw the the sacrificial system. They didn't receive an inheritance in the land. Every other tribe received a land inheritance. They didn't. Their job was to take care of the temple. They were the only people that were allowed to be priests and oversee temple worship. But then you see what Isaiah says. He, he pictures a day when people from every people group will serve as priests and as Levites. See, if a Jewish person would have read this, this, this would have been scandalous. But I don't think that I don't think that Isaiah is is picturing a future day when the sacrificial system will return. Instead, I think Peter helps us understand this text in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he says this, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. You see what he's saying? That you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we get to proclaim his excellencies. We get to proclaim his glory to the world. Paul highlights in Galatians that the Jew-Gentile distinction has been erased at the cross. Isaiah's foreshadowing a day, picturing a day when the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. That Gentile believers, that's you and me, are going to be on the, the same position, the same plane as the Jewish believers, something under the old covenant that the Jewish people never would have seen. But this is another picture of God's heart for the nations that we see in the Old Testament. Look again at verse 22 in our text. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. 
from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. (laughs) When you read verse 22, God guarantees the new heaven and the new earth. And it doesn't say the new heaven and the new earth that I will make. You catch that? The new heaven and the new earth that I, I make. It's almost as if God is actively even now beginning to prepare the new heaven and the new earth. A day that's coming down the road, a, a passage even from the chapter before that Adam unpacked last week. I know that it's been, for a number of people in our young adult family, it's been a really heavy couple of days. Um, there's a, it's a painful car accident that happened on, on Saturday um, that, as I've learned even today, has ripple effects here in a lot more ways than I ever even realized. Um, But then Isaiah promises the new heavens and new earth. A day John foreshadows where God will wipe away every tear from our eye, where death will be no more, where there'll be no more pain, no more crying anymore, for those former things are going to pass away. And then he says, behold, I'm making all things new there might be a weight of grief tonight. But when I read the new heaven and the new earth, it reminds me that that weight is not something that's going to last forever. No, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But this is not the way it will always be. He's making everything new. And he guarantees it in verse 22. But then as, as you read the end of verse 23, he says, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Someone might read that verse and say, well, I guess I'm going to become a universalist. All flesh is going to come and worship. So everyone's going to be saved. I don't need to share my faith. I don't need to evangelize. You know, I don't even need to be a Christian because in the end, everyone's going to have a second chance. Everyone's going to be saved. Well, as Andrew said last week, a... Text without a context is a con. Um, we should never read a verse just in isolation without understanding what comes before and comes after it. And when we talk about the laws of hermeneutics, what are the three most important words of hermeneutics? Context, context, context. Right. So if we want to understand this verse, we've got to see what comes before and what comes after. If you read verse 24, uh, it would shatter any universalist leaning in verse 23. Um, But before we get there, maybe we can think about how the word all flesh is used throughout the passage. Look at verse 16. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. Same word. So I read verse 16, and it certainly seems like all flesh is going to be destroyed by the sword. And then I read verse 23, and it says all flesh is going to be saved. How in the world do we reconcile those two? I think what Isaiah is saying is that there'll be representatives, there'll be people from every ethnic group, from every people group that will be in both camps. And it's almost as if he pictures this, this group, maybe a, a group of those who are saved is going to be way larger than we expect, but at the same time, the group of those who actively reject God is going to be much larger than we expect as well. But I like how verse 23 finishes. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. 
See, if I was writing the book, I would have ended it right there. But Isaiah includes verse 24, (laughs) a little bit of a different tone. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Yeah, it's a little bit of a Debbie Downer, isn't it? Total tone change from the verse before. And it might feel a little bit out of place. You might ask, God, why is this, even, why is this here? Why do we even need this? But remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired. It's all inerrant. So this is here for a purpose. So why does Isaiah end here? Because we need to hold in, hold in tension the dual fulfillment of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is both a day of salvation and rescue for God's people, but at the same time, it's a day of judgment and punishment for those, as the text says, have rebelled against God. That means those who've not decided to receive Christ as Savior. It's not a pretty picture. And I don't think that this verse means that those who do know Christ are going to morbidly be watching the eternal fire. No. This text serves as a sobering reminder to those who haven't yet decided to follow Christ that this is what eternity will look like for a those who don't place their faith in Christ. I don't know a softer way to put that. But it's also a sobering reality for those of us who do know Christ that we get to be part of God's greatest mission, of God's greatest story, of sharing the good news of the gospel, of declaring God's glory among the nations with those who haven't heard his glory yet. Let me pray. Father, it's been a good night. It's been a good semester together diving into Isaiah. And you know, if there's anything that I've said tonight or even throughout our entire series that was not true, uh, may you remove that from our minds and our hearts. And may you continue to guide us by your word, that we aren't just people who hear the word and let it go in one year and out the other, but that we're people who actively listen and apply the word to our life. So may that even be true as we unpack a little bit in our small groups tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.